for the politics of Nashville, to the history of the Upper Cumberland. This is the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Senator Paul Bailey. In today's episode, we have invited Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally to sit down and have a discussion. The focus of our discussion today will be his experience as the current Lieutenant Governor of Tennessee and what it has been like serving as a legislative leader for nearly 40 years. But before we get started, I would like to invite Speaker McNally to tell us a little bit about himself and give us his backstory. Welcome, Mr. Speaker. Glad to be here. Glad to be here, Senator Bailey. I appreciate you doing this. And we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, visit with our listeners in the Upper Cumberland and all points in between. Talking about your backstory, I I found it very interesting that uh, you were actually born in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, I wanted to be close to my mother is why I was born there. (laughs) Well, I'd say we all want to be close to our mother at that point in time. So so how many years did you live in in Massachusetts? Four. Four years. Dad was had just graduated from MIT and was in a teaching position. And somebody from Oak Ridge National Lab came up and hired him away, and we moved to Tennessee. It was uh, myself, and I had a brother who was a year younger and a sister who was two years younger and another on the way. And not for me, for my mother. <laughs> <laughs> so was that during the time that you moved to Tennessee? Was that right after World War II, or was that during or right before? Right after. Right after. It was 1948. And so the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, your um, father went to work there. I assume uh-huh. he retired there. And then so mm-hmm. you grew up in the, in the Oak Ridge area then. Right. Yeah, I attended school in Oak Ridge and graduated from Oak Ridge High School. And I think that's one of the things uh, you and Speaker Sexton have in common. You both graduated from the same high school. We we, we have. Just a couple of years in between. A few. <laughs> a few. <laughs> and you've been happily married to your wife, Janice, for um, many years now. And so tell 53. us. 53. Well, congratulations on that. And so tell us a little bit how you met Miss Janice. Well, that's, that's an interesting story. I was in a student in pharmacy school, and so I had to have so many hours working in a drugstore. So I had a job working in a drugstore. And also, before that, I had a job at a restaurant as a maitre d', and it was mostly on weekends, and it was in the evening. And they provided me with a very good salary and free meals, which uh, it was a very upscale restaurant and a tuxedo. So, oh wow! So I like to say I met Jan in a card game, but <laughs> I was coming in from work and I didn't have a car, so I rode the Memphis bus down to where the legislature is, and I'd been invited to meet her and a few other friends, and they needed a fourth for bridge, so. She and I were partners in Bridge, and I kind of bluffed my way through it. And oh, okay. I think it was the tux that got her. Oh, yeah. You know, 
I just came in from work and wearing a tux. She, she, <laughs> she thought it was very nice. She was a teacher at the time. Okay. And then she went to nursing school after the kids got in school and became an intensive care nurse and then an intensive care manager, then a nursing manager and on up the road and into uh, eventually she was the hospital administrator. So you were, uh, you received your bachelor's of science degree from uh, Memphis State University. And then you went to uh, pharmacy school at the University of Tennessee. And so I'm assuming, did you meet her in Memphis? It was in Memphis. Okay. While I was in pharmacy school. Okay. Okay. So then I know that once you became a pharmacist and I think you've retired, um, have, have you retired uh, mm-hmm. from being a, a pharmacist? I worked a short time in retail pharmacy, and that was an experience. And then I transferred over to hospital pharmacy. Okay. And uh, towards the end of my career, they had us doing a lot of things in the area of patient care, like we'd dose some of the antibiotic drugs we were trained in advanced cardiac life support and participated on the code teams when they had a a code blue, code red, that type of thing. Wow. So were you and Jan at the same hospital? Yeah, for a while we were. At that time, I was working for Cardinal Health, which manages some of the pharmacies, and she was working for Covenant, which uh, was at the hospital I was at. Wow. Very good. So I understand you have a passion for lacrosse and, uh, you've, I do. You've also played as goalie. Uh, well, I started as a defensive player. Uh, they call them long sticks cause their sticks are longer than the other players. And then I, the people got a little too fast for me. And, and so as a goalie, you're, you're not running as much, and I enjoyed that part, and plus I took up a lot more room than some of those skinny <laughs> kids at the at the goal, so it, it's a fun game. I know you still like to play today. Well, the last time I played was in 2019. They had a game in 24-hour lacrosse game in Kennesaw, Georgia. And it was for wounded warriors. Oh, okay. And so we raised over $10,000, wow. I think, for wounded warriors. And I played in two games. And uh, the uh, first game I played maybe about 15 minutes. And then the second game I played the whole game. So it was it was fun. We had a very good defense. So there were only two shots that were taken on me and, <laughs> and I, I blocked one and on one they scored. Oh, well, you were 50% on the game then. And that's the best I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> so I also understand and, and certainly see your Facebook post. Uh, you, you have a love for golden retrievers and, uh, your current golden retriever is shadow. Right. And he, when we got him, We've had four over about a 50-year period, and they live about 10 years. And we got Shadow about three years ago, 
and the rescue people told us that they had named him Shadow because he was afraid of his own shadow. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he must have been caged most of his life and was afraid of everything. Every little sound made him very anxious. And uh, eventually we, we got him to a fairly good state. We still have trouble with him on a leash, mm -hmm. but I can turn him loose and, and he'll come. And we also have an invisible fence that's so he can go out in the yard when he wants to. But he's he's a good dog. Went to the beach with us and had a big time. Well, I saw uh, some photos about uh, you being at the beach and having Shadow there. He probably had as good a time as you did. Yeah. At first, the waves scared him. He had been to lakes and ponds and where it's calm, and he'd start to go in the water and a wave would come and crash and he would run back and then he started going up there and when the wave would come he'd bark at it okay that didn't do any good <laughs> so then he kind of zigzagged around where the waves were curling and he had a big time he he got out there swimming and had a big time well i think you had a good time watching him i did I did. It was fun. And Funny. You, and you mentioned that he was a rescue? Rescue. All the dogs, all the Goldens we've had over, over the 50-year period have been rescues. Wow. Wow. That's a great story within itself to be able to find Golden Retrievers and, and uh, those type dogs and rescue them and, and, and give them a good home. So growing up, did you see yourself ever getting into politics? Not Initially, I had an interest in history, but mostly I studied biology and chemistry in high school and continued that through college. But in college, I got involved in some of the elections. And actually, when I graduated from pharmacy school, I called Winfield Dunn, who was a candidate for governor running from Memphis. Mm hmm and told him that I'd like to help him out. I thought that a Republican from Memphis could take the Memphis area and west part of West Tennessee, and East Tennessee normally goes Republican, and he'd win. And that was partially correct. The mm -hmm. Democrats were divided that year. That was the year John J. Hooker ran. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the Democrats were very neutral on him. On him. He was a young upstart at that time. And I, I worked with some local people and really enjoyed what I was doing and then worked in Senator Brock's election, Jane Hardaway's election when she run, ran for Public Service Commission. And then an opening came. Keith Bissell decided to run for Public Service Commission in the 33rd District where I lived. So mm -hmm. I ran and was behind until I started doing a lot of door-to-door -door right after the primary. And uh, that turned it around, and I was able to able to win. And that was in 1978? Right. Right. Now you're the longest-serving member in the— Well, I wish I didn't have that distinction. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an honor. Your constituents have uh, seen how hard you work, and they've continued to— Send you back, and so you served in the house for eight years. Eight years, and then four terms, and then from there you ran for the Senate, and certainly served the rest of your time in the Senate. 
And so uh, tell me what the biggest difference in the legislature <laughs> then as compared to today. I think today there's a lot more professionalism in the legislature. There's not as much of the fooling around and certainly not as much of the drinking and partying and that type of thing. But the legislature, when I started, I think Governor Alexander was governor at that time. Speaker McWhorter was the speaker. The Democrats in the legislature were mainly in, from West Tennessee, mm -hmm. and they were very conservative, fiscally conservative. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I began to learn about the state budget and served on the finance committee my last four years, I believe, in the, in the House. And then I think I had probably about 26 years in the Senate of finance committee service. And part of your first statement, the difference between when you first began to serve and today, you talked about that there's more professionalism today than there was back then. Do you think social media has played a part in having members uh, be more responsible? It is. It is. It holds people to a higher standard. And also the people in the legislature, there's there used to be sort of an unwritten code that you didn't talk about certain things that happened. And I think that that's gone now. And people are, when they do see something that's wrong, they report it to the proper people. Who would you say your mentor was for the legislature? Well, I had, had a couple, Ben Atchley, Senator Henry, uh, he was a Democrat and chaired finance for a number of years. Ben was a Republican leader in the, in the Senate. And Ron Ramsey, who preceded me as, as speaker. But all of them were different, but all of them were very professional gentlemen. They were very knowledgeable about the process and very fair in doing things. Senator Henry. I only had the opportunity to serve with him a very short time when mm -hmm. I came to the legislature, but, but what a gentleman he was and someone that truly, truly loved the state of Tennessee He did, and always wanted to make sure that it was fiscally sound. And, um, would you say that because of him, that is one of the reasons Tennessee, he said early, um, set the stage early. Uh, as chair of finance and, and basically trying to make sure the state of Tennessee was uh, fiscally sound. He did. And along with John Bragg, who was a representative and chaired House Finance, and Leonard Donovan, who was vice chair of Senate Finance, those three people put the state, I think, on a very good course. And they made sure that they redid the pension system, made sure that when you passed a bill that increased benefits, the, the state paid for it. And then previous to that, uh, bills were being passed, and it would take effect, you know, some years down the road. So there wasn't an initial cost. And they changed the law so that the final, the actual cost to the state in the end would be reflected in the fiscal note. I think you uh, told a story one time 
about Senator Henry when he was first elected that he wanted a copy of the state's budget. Right. And so tell that story. I think our listeners will find that very interesting. He was he served as a representative before coming to the Senate, and it was his first appropriations bill that was being passed. And back then, they didn't have all the transparency that we have now. And he went to the governor's office and asked the secretary there if he could see the budget. And she pulled open a drawer and took out a piece of paper and looked down the piece of paper, and she said, I'm sorry, Representative Henry, you're not on the list. (laughs) So he said he went in and dutifully voted for it, sight unseen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good news is uh, you don't have to be on the list today to be able to see the budget. Yeah, and the public can see the budget. (laughs) Exactly. So you were um, a key part in Operation Rocky Top. Tell us just a little bit about your role and how that affected your career here in the legislature as well. In 1986, I realized that there were some things that were not going on in the enforcement of the bingo regulations. There were companies that would come in and play and it was supposed to be charities that were playing. And they were also violating the prize limits and the number of days you could play. So I had gone to the Secretary of State's office to obtain information, didn't get anywhere. In fact, when I'd complain, they'd investigate legitimate charities in my district and leave the the storefront operations, is what we called them, the, the crooked ones they'd leave them alone. And uh, I realized I wasn't getting any help from them. I looked at the charter on the storefront operation, and it was called, it was chartered under Army-Navy Union, and it was out of Chicago. And the man who signed the charter, one of the gentlemen who I guess was the executive director, He had a rather strange name, so I was able to locate that name in the Chicago directory and called him up and didn't get an answer. I did call him for about a week or 10 days and no answer. Finally, he did answer, and he said that that was the right number for the organization, which was a little strange, his home number, and he said that He had been in the hospital is why there was no answer. So that was also strange that there there was just one person there Mm -hmm. that headed the organization. And I asked him about getting a a charter, and he said all I needed to do was get three people to sign and send them, I think it was $100 or something like that, and he'd send me a charter. Well, that's Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's not... uh, not how you do things. Uh, and I went to the FBI because I didn't get anywhere with the state and was a little bit concerned about the TBI, but an FBI and TBI agent met with me and they told me that they had seen a lot of smoke but no fire and asked me if I'd cooperate with them and they told me what I could and couldn't do and 
that I could only, you know, record like the people that were in charge of the enforcement and a lobbyist that was with the Bingo Association. And so it, it went on for a number of years and I think ended in the winter of 90. It started, I think, in the spring of 87, I guess. And it was a fairly long investigation. And when they finished, there were about 80 people that were indicted and all but one were convicted. And the crimes ranged from income tax fraud, just regular fraud, uh, bribery, extortion, kidnapping, assault. Kidnapping. Yeah, they took one of the bingo operators who had been skimming and drove him around and forced him in a car and then drove him around and took him out to someplace and tuned him up a little and oh, then wow. then brought him back. And So this was full organized crime then? Yeah, the, the FBI and TBI called it the Cornbread Mafia. Okay. <laughs> so, so don't know how organized they were, but they uh, certainly bring in the strong arm against some. Yeah. Luckily, nothing ever happened to me. And some of my colleagues in the legislature, you know, were very complimentary about what I did. And there were others that kind of shunned me a little, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you can imagine. So it, it took a while to get through that. and. I have a very great respect for the FBI and the TBI and the way that they handle that particular case. So let's come forward to today. And, and as you know, there's been a FBI probe of some members in the House in regards to some spending that's taken place and some what they're calling shadow companies. Mm-hmm. How do you compare today's probe, FBI probe investigation to what took place during Operation Rocky Top? It was very similar. I think the key element in Rocky Top was that a legislator would get close to a lobbyist and become very friendly with that individual. And in turn, usually it was a legislator that had power. And in turn, when there was a vote that was very close, then that lobbyist would go and try to barter the legislator's vote. And one bill they tried that on was a horse racing bill. And they actually, I was told by the lobbyists that we were going to split the money. And it was, I think, $20,000 each would get ten. And we found out later that it was really twenty five thousand, oh. and he got fifteen, and I got ten. <laughs> and, but I I never did because I was against that particular bill. I couldn't vote for it, so we kind of strung them along. And then at at the end, told them, "Well, I'm getting too much pressure from back home, and I can't vote for it." And uh, he said, "Oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it." And then there was an undercover FBI agent that was working him also, and he let the FBI undercover FBI agent know that he was very upset with me and oh. called me a few choice names. <laughs> <laughs> Let's come 
forward to 2017 and you were elected Speaker of the Senate, which also holds the title of Lieutenant Governor of Tennessee. Tell us how you felt on that day. That was a very special day. I had my family and brothers and sisters that came down and mom and dad, of course, had passed away at that time. And it was one of the highlights, I think, having my family there and going through the roll call. And I think I was elected 27 to 5 or or something like that. There was some that passed and uh, some voted for another candidate. But when I went up and Ron and I kind of hugged, a man hug, mm-hmm. that is. <laughs> there wasn't any kissing or anything. <laughs> but it was very emotional. And when... He handed me the gavel, and he stepped down, and it was a little bittersweet because Mm -hmm. I had worked with him, and I knew that he was going home. He had planned to stay about 10 years and then go home, and he wanted to be with his family. He had about eight grandchildren at that time, and uh, he, you know, wanted to get out on the farm and ride the tractor with his grandson grandsons and really enjoy the rest of his his life without some of the pressure Mm -hmm. and it was a very emotional day for me and uh for him also and one thing we did the speaker as a driver and Mm -hmm. when he was not the speaker anymore he didn't have a driver oh yeah that's probably hard (laughs) to get used to so we sent Bill with him, one of the highway patrol people that drive for the speakers. We sent him with Ron for the last last drive home. Mm. And uh, it was bittersweet, but mostly, mostly sweet. You hold three titles. You're Speaker of the Senate, you're Lieutenant Governor, and you're also a Senator. Mm-hmm. And many times I call you Governor. Many times I call you Mr. Speaker, but mostly I call you my friend. <laughs> so uh, just Thank you. kind of a personal story, and maybe you remember this, but when Governor Ramsey announced on the floor that he was uh, going to retire, you and I were walking down Motlow Tunnel back mm-hmm. to uh, Legislative Plaza, just the two of us, and I said, Mr. Chairman, I said, uh, Who's going to be our next leader? And you said, what are you doing for breakfast in the morning? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that or not, but you and I met at the yeah, Hermitage right. and yeah. uh, just the two of us. And we had breakfast and, and uh, you told me that uh, you were going to seek that position. And I'm sure there was, there were others that knew of that, but mm-hmm. I felt that was a very special day for me, for you to confide in me that you were going to, uh, seek the uh, speakership and the position of lieutenant governor. So I wanted to thank you for uh, sharing that with me and on more of a personal basis than just uh, openly. So thank you for that. Well, you were, I could tell you were a rock star. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> and we, we had an opening on transportation for the chairmanship and I, that's where I wanted to put you and it was a it was a tough committee, and it was a tough year in, 
in transportation. That was the year that we uh, you, had the Improve Act. We had the Improve Act, and you did you did a stellar <laughs> job. And so when the opening came in the uh, Commerce Committee, which is probably one of the better committees to be on, Commerce or Finance, and I asked you to chair that committee. Well, and thank you've you. you've done very well, and <laughs> I I appreciate it. I think the key to my success is not me, but it's the the chairman and the members that we have in our caucus. Uh, they're great individuals, and they they do their homework, and they're experts in the field that we appoint them to. And uh, it's it's just uh, makes my job pretty easy. And again, I certainly appreciate your confidence that you've placed in me. And as a freshman senator and, and also being appointed by you to be chair of transportation and safety, I've often said you placed a lot of confidence in me to help shepherd the Improve Act through, and so uh, which has been very beneficial to uh, Tennessee and to the citizens of Tennessee. So again, thank you for that. And the Commerce Committee is certainly a rewarding committee, but my goodness, I didn't realize how much work was going to be <laughs> involved in that. <laughs> they have a lot of bills, and a lot of important bills. And diversity. Yeah. Uh, you know, one minute you're talking about insurance issues, and then the next you're dealing with uh, labor issues, and the next you're dealing with 10 care. So it yeah. is very, very diverse, and, and you certainly learn a lot about state government in regards to commerce. You've had to lead through some uh, extraordinary times, both last year and now going into 2021. Um, how do you think COVID has impacted the state and, and local politics? We really are, are just kind of learning about the impact of it and uh, how the economic impact, the impact of families in Tennessee and what it has really done and the numbers were very high and extraordinarily high over the holidays, but then they've started drifting down and it's hopefully will continue to go down. It's interesting. Some people have it and have very little symptoms and some people have it and they end up in intensive care and, and, uh, can die. And I think as we see the, numbers go down it's because of you know trump was able to get two vaccines through the pipeline uh there's a third and a fourth that are in the pipeline that, that should be coming out soon and as we get people vaccinated and as people are uh have been exposed to it and built up immunity I think we'll see the death rate and the hospitalization rate continue to fall. I hope we're seeing that now. But it's had a dramatic impact. We saw our revenues. It was like a, a V. It just went right down to the bottom. And then it picked, believe it or not, in April it started picking up. And it picked up fairly quickly. And so we do have additional revenues this year we're concerned that a lot of those revenues were in things like housing construction 
appliances for houses, cars, big ticket items. And we know that people won't be purchasing those again for a number of years. And so it's difficult to say that all the revenues that we've taken in this year are going to recur for us year after year, uh, that a lot of them will be non-recurring. And I think the governor's recognized that in his budget. Internet sales tax, I think, has played a huge part in it. It has. We've seen retail sales, brick and mortar, down. But I think internet sales are up. Restaurants are probably hurting the most, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, some tourism is, is down, too. What has been your biggest challenge as lieutenant governor? Biggest challenge? That's, that's interesting. <laughs> I haven't really thought of that one, but I think it's, it was the same, I think, when I was first elected. And when I was first elected, I started getting all these letters from these important people, and they'd say the Honorable Randy McNally, and people would call me and thank me and, mm-hmm. and said what a great race and what a great representative I'd be. And, you know, your head starts to swell. And I remember one lady came up to me in the drugstore. I was working in retail drug then. And uh, she said she was bragging about how good it was to know me and everything like that. And she really did appreciate putting myself forward to run and, then she said, and I'm so sorry you lost. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know whether she confused me with my opponent, Don Layton, or, or not. But, you know, when you're first elected and people start calling you governor, of course, I started looking around to see where Governor Lee was mm-hmm. or Governor Haslam at the time. And it can go to your head. And I think the challenge was making sure that you were grounded and that you were a servant of the Senate and not the dictator of the Senate, not the general or whatever. Uh, but you were, you were there as a servant. Very good. So we're getting close to closing out and you and, and miss Jan have two children, two girls, and, and, uh, you have three grandchildren. Three. Three grandchildren. Two of, I guess they got my chemistry gene, but they've gone into biochemistry in grad school. Oh, wow. One at Emory and one at Vandy. And one's about a year off from graduating once Trent has just started. And uh, then the other grandchild, Morgan, is, is in ballet, and she is in some of the ballet productions and has been and also teaches some ballet, but that's hard to do right now. <laughs> yes, it is. So uh, when you decide your time is up uh, here in the legislature after a long and successful career, what do you hope people will remember most about your time that you spent as a legislator? Well, I think the legacy that I hope to leave is is that I kept the state in good financial shape that's you know the only duty constitutionally the legislature has is to pass an an appropriation bill uh, that's balanced 
and that we maintain our AAA rating, that taxes are low, keep taxes low, that keep, keep debt low, make sure the pension system's stable. And I hope that they remember that it wasn't me, it was the Senate that did all these things and that I was just a part of it. And I enjoy what I do and enjoy the working with people like you. And we have a great membership in the Senate, ladies and men and black and white, and they all work very hard and they all have done some great things. And I'm very appreciative of it. You know, one thing that I've learned coming to the legislature is that although we're all Tennesseans, we have different perspectives. We from do. Whether we're from East Tennessee, Middle, or West Tennessee, uh, but we all come to a general consensus and do what's right for Tennesseans, and I think that's most important. We may not always agree on every piece of legislation that comes through, but that's the good legislative process, and we right. come to a consensus and agree on it, and we do things that's in the best interest of the of the state. And the people in the legislature are not angry. We might not agree. We might argue different points of view, but after it's over, we're not mad at each other. And I think that's, if Congress could be more like that, I think it'd be great. Absolutely. I think that, I think they've lost, I think they've lost their way <laughs> in Washington. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I tell my constituents all the time, if, if Washington could be, if Congress and Washington could be more like Tennessee, we could really make America great again. We could, we could. Well, governor, it's certainly been an honor and a pleasure having you on the podcast today. And, and I thank you for taking the time to be with us and, and for our listeners to, to learn more about you. Do you have any final thoughts as uh, we close out? Well, we've been through some very tough times and probably the toughest times that Tennessee's been through since the, the Civil War. And I think the reaction from the people in Tennessee has been tremendous. And we've had tornadoes, we've had floods, we've had riots, we've had protests, we've had the coronavirus and people dying and people in sick in hospitals. We've had our economy shaken. But Tennessee remains strong. And the spirit Tennesseans carry forward, I think, is, is so marvelous. And just Tennessee strong, that would be my final words. Thank you. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Senator Paul Bailey along with Nally. Thank you for listening to Backroads and Backstories. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at backroadsandbackstories.com and subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at backroadsandbackstories.com and subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Backroads and Backstories podcast.